Welcome to the Trinity Grace Church Tribeca podcast. At Trinity Grace Church, our mission is to help New Yorkers grow in love by practicing the way of Jesus for the good of our city. If you're interested in Trinity Grace Church Tribeca, check out our website at tgctribeca.com where you can learn more about us and learn about ways that you can help support our church and this podcast. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook to see and hear what's going on in our community. Thank you for joining us today and welcome grace and peace to you. is Luke chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep? until he finds it, and when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders, and he goes home, and then he calls his friends and his neighbors together, and he says, rejoice with me, I found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. This is the gospel. Oh, 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 let's keep going. Let's keep going. Um, Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and her neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I found my lost coin. And in the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of angels over one sinner who repents. This is the gospel of our Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. You may be seated. Before I offer my reflection this morning, I'd like us to to enter into a practice of presence where uh, we simply become aware and attentive um, to what God may be doing uh, in our own stories, in our own lives, and in this room, in this moment. So much of uh, spiritual work, good spiritual work, is just paying attention. As Aaron said, God's presence is already here and with us, and uh, there's such a beautiful teaching on that, and yet uh, the way we tap into it can be kind of difficult. So this is a way to tap into it. Um, So as best as you know how, just open your heart to God, open your heart to to each other, open your heart to this moment, and uh, bring your full self. You might have lots of doubts, lots of skepticism. You might have been burned, and you're sort of like, we're your last stop on the way out. Just bring your full self to this. Uh, You might be super excited and full of faith and anticipation and uh, just have a sense of momentum uh, spiritually in your life. Bring your full self. Um, Let's open our hearts to God together as a community right now. As we open our hearts to God, I invite you to focus on your breath. 
Interestingly enough, the word for spirit in the Bible is the same kind of word used for wind and breath. And it reminds us that God's presence, God's spirit, is as near to us as our very breath. And as you breathe in, just consider the presence of God, which is in you and moves all around you and is at work if we have eyes to see and ears to hear. Oh God, help us to have fresh ears for these stories. These stories which, for those of us who grew up in uh, the Christian church, are familiar stories, stories told over and over again. They've become symbolic stories writ large which loom over our lives and fill our imaginations in rich ways and have often touched our lives in profound ways. And, and yet here we are again wrestling with these stories and we ask for fresh eyes and ears to hear how you're guiding us, how you're leading us uh, to do something with these stories. And we pray that in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I'm going to start with a question and then tell you what I'm not trying to do this morning, okay? So it's a nice way to start a sermon. But first of all, a question, and it's this. Is it possible that you have lost something or someone in your life but haven't noticed it? Or I can maybe put it another way. Is it possible that perhaps you yourself feel like you've been lost and the people who you feel like should notice are not noticing it right now? All right, now let me just tell you what I'm not gonna be doing this morning, okay? I'm not going to be uh, giving a nice reinforcement to the sort of cherished interpretations that you probably heard uh, with these parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and after it, the lost son, which we will talk about this morning. I, like you, have had these cherished interpretations touch my life in a profound way. They have been taught by my favorite teachers and pastors. Uh, they've been preached. They've been earned through hard study, at least on my part. And they've resonated deeply with me over the years, having a sort of healing force. But today, I'm not gonna be retracing those lines. Uh, and I wanna be clear, I'm not trying to take anything away from you, and, or myself, for that matter. I actually believe that the conclusions that most of our cherished interpretations come to when we think of these stories are beautiful and wonderful conclusions that should be affirmed and practiced and, uh, and frankly, aren't paid attention to enough. I just recently uh, became convinced, though, that the... Uh, conclusions that we usually come up with from these stories don't actually fit what I think Jesus was trying to do with these stories. And in fact, they kind of, uh, the dark shadow of our cherished interpretations is that they often cast stereotypes on uh, the Judaism of Jesus' day. So today I'm going to take a little bit of a different angle and I'm going to give a big shout out to uh, New Testament scholar A.J. Levine. Uh, whose book, Short Stories by Jesus, sort of launched me into this different perspective earlier this year. Um, so, in the words of Samuel L. Jackson in Jurassic Park, hold on to your butts. Um, I want to begin thinking about, the, 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 in chronological order, just the way the stories flow. The sheep, uh, the shepherd and the sheep, the woman and the coin, and then the father and the sons. Um, first of all, we have the shepherd and the sheep. And listen, the cherished interpretation has been 
that, you know, God is the one who searches and finds, and we are the ones who are lost and are found. And even Luke's way of talking about it seems to reinforce it, where he says, uh, you know, God rejoices, the angels rejoice over one sinner who repents. And the inciting moment of this is kind of confusing in some ways. Jesus is having a meal, but he's having a meal with the wrong kind of people. Uh, The text tells us he's having a meal with sinners and tax collectors. And in response to this, uh, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were upset. And so Jesus is telling these stories in response to that sort of outrage, that sense of impropriety with meals. Now, I do want to push pause because meals are an ordinary part of life. And part of what we do in this season of the church, you know, half the church calendar is about the story of Jesus, half the year is about ordinary time. And right now in the fall, we're in the ordinary time. It's where we take spirituality out of the clouds, we bring it here into the gritty, sort of earthy, everyday, and in our case, urban life of, uh, of, of a person. And we say, what is there to glean here? What is there to learn here? What is there to practice here? What is there to experience here in our everyday routines? And Jesus is seen in Luke's gospel to be taking this everyday, ordinary practice of sharing a meal and completely transforming it, flipping it upside down, turning it into almost a kind of guerrilla theater where he's shopping and exposing and telling a story that in some ways goes against the main story most people are living out. He's saying something profound with just an everyday gesture and thereby has transfigured it. And it leaves us asking the question, in a city like ours, in lives like ours, what ordinary practices could we take and maybe look at from a different angle and they would have a transformative impact in our life? Now, stop. Push play again. Back to the story. Um, We are now reflecting on the shepherd and the sheep. And Jesus is doing something interesting here. He's setting up a character, this shepherd, uh, who immediately we hear has a hundred sheep. And he asks the Pharisees and, the, and the, the teachers of the law, which of you having a hundred sheep? And the immediate response to that would probably be like, well, that's not me. I'm not in that category because, of course, most of the people that traveled around Jesus and often uh, flocked to Jesus and even those who were Pharisees uh, and, and teachers of the law were part of the peasant class. And if you owned a hundred sheep, you're not part of the peasant class. You're quite wealthy. And so Jesus introduces a wealthy figure, and we usually run to God as the shepherd, but I would point out uh, the shepherd loses the sheep here, um, and I'm not sure what that's supposed to say about God if God is the shepherd. How would you know, by the way, a sheep is missing? Now imagine a sheep, a shepherd with a hundred sheep out in the field, and, uh, and all of a sudden has this epiphany, I'm missing a sheep. How would you know? Uh, some old rabbinic, like... Uh, Um, interpretations, uh, kind of posture that maybe, oh, it wasn't a rabbinic, sorry, this is the gospel according to Thomas, so an extra canonical book of the Bible, uh, which means that church said that one doesn't belong. Um, But that one tells the story, only the sheep is noticed because it was the big sheep, it was the fat sheep. Um, And so that's an interesting way to think about how did the shepherd know which sheep was, was gone or that one was gone. But what, what, what is the way that you would find that out? How would you know if a sheep was missing? You would what? You'd have to count. And so one of the things that we learn about this shepherd is that at some point, he pauses from his responsibilities, or maybe even this is considered part of the responsibility, and he counts his sheep. 
And at the end of the accounting, he realizes that there is, in fact, a sheep missing. And so he goes on a search. In fact, it's a, a, quite a reckless search. He leaves the 99 behind, which uh, if, if you read much about shepherding in Jesus' context, you know that to do that is likely you're going to come back to almost zero sheep. But he leaves the 99. And then uh, upon finding the 99, he throws a big party. And he invites his friends, he invites his neighbors, and there's this huge celebration because what was lost has been found. Now, we move on. We have the story of a, a woman who loses a coin. And once again, uh, we're told that she has 10 silver coins. Now, this is a signal right off the bat that we're dealing with a wealthy person once again. Um, and this doesn't play into a lot of the stereotypes of like, uh, you know, shepherds as awful people and women as downtrodden and oppressed. Um, certainly patriarchy had its roots, uh, but women still had agency and they, they had power and they uh, often were in charge of money and spent it at their discretion. It's just not fair to paint a portrait, a flat portrait of women in Jesus' time. Uh, many women are, are told in the Gospels to have funded Jesus' ministry. And so here's a woman with wealth at her discretion, and, uh, and she's missing a coin. Now, we've moved from 100 to 10, which is, you know, it's quite a dip. It's, it's much easier to find a missing uh, coin out of 10 than it is one sheep out of 100. And yet, if I were to put 10 coins here in a pile on the table, I'm sure that you wouldn't notice if one was missing. What would she have had to done to discover that there was a coin missing? She'd have to count. And so... At a moment, maybe in her own daily rhythm or weekly rhythm or whatever she's doing, she begins to count. She realizes one is missing. And it sends her on a search, a furious search, to find this missing coin. And she even employs a party that scholars uh, wonder, maybe it cost more to put on this search party than actually the, what the coin was worth. But in the end, she finds the lost coin and she rejoices. She throws a party. Um, the text tells us uh, it was her lady friends, actually, that she invited, uh, her friends and her family. And she rejoices. She has a huge party because what was lost has been found. And now we get to the last son, which we didn't read this morning, but it's kind of important because like any uh, good teaching of stories, they often come in threes. Think of the three little pigs, you know, tick, tick, which is the setup, and then bang. Same thing with Cinderella. Tick, tick, bang. I don't know why I'm saying tick, tick, bang, but it just makes sense to me. Um, you got set up, set up, and then the punchline. Um, it's true with the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan, you have uh, one person come up upon this man who's been endangered and is in bad shape, and nothing happens. Another person comes. You expect him to help. Nothing happens. And with the third, there's a twist, right? The same, I think, is true here. This rule of threes. We have a shepherd who loses track of the sheep, but then counts realizes one's missing, goes on a hunt, finds it, celebrates, has a party. We have a woman who realizes after counting that she's lost a coin, and then she goes on a hot search, comes back upon finding it, throws a big party. But now we have two sons. And we've gone from 100 to 10 to 2. Now we had sympathy with the shepherd, right? I mean, the 100's a lot. You could lose it easily. Uh, 10, it's a little harder to lose 1 out of 10, but, you know, we'll give her the benefit of the doubt. If it's a stack on the table, it's hard to miss. Maybe there's a mischievous kid around. We don't know. Um, but with a, ch a child, with two children, you only have two. Yeah, two children, those are pretty hard to keep track of, or easy to keep track of. 
So we think. But it turns out that people are much more difficult than things when it comes to counting and paying attention and making sure everything's accounted for. This father is also portrayed as wealthy. So let me just see how this is stacking here, right? Wealthy shepherd, wealthy woman, wealthy man who has a large estate. The younger son, as you know, uh, asks for his inheritance early, and uh, the story tells us that the father gave him half, which in Jewish sensibilities in Jesus' time is an affront because the firstborn gets two-thirds. And so this younger son, the younger of two, getting half is showing us something. It's showing us a little bit of favoritism on the part of the father. Um, There's no rebuke on the father. The father doesn't say, this is a bad idea. What are you doing? Get out of here. You know, rethink this. He just acquiesces to the son's request. And then the son goes off and famously squanders the wealth, um, living extravagantly, right? Eating, drinking, carousing. That's a word we don't use very often. Um, but he, he has a good time. And then in the end, he, he sort of fall, finds himself at the bottom. He, he's hungry. That's his problem. He can't eat. He can't find a meal. He's probably begging. No one's helping him. And uh, he, he comes to his senses, and he begins to calculate and plot. Now, we often are like, look at this. This is the one lost son who went away, and he's contrite now. He's repentant. The angels are rejoicing, and God is rejoicing. Look, he's having a turnaround. But um, A.J. Levine, who, who herself has a Jewish background, reads this in its context and goes, you know what, it, the original readers and hearers and listeners are probably listening to this, and they're not thinking very favorably of the son. First of all, he made a dumb call. Like, that was dumb to take the inheritance. They're also wondering about the father. What's going on with the father? He's letting him do this with no resistance. And then he goes and squanders it all, and he's at the bottom, and he starts rehearsing. Now, remember the speech he rehearses to his father? Part of it is, he says, it begins with, uh, oh, oh, Father, I've sinned against God and against you. Now, where else have we heard that? Uh, maybe Siri will tell us. I don't know. Um, but where have we heard that? We've heard that with Pharaoh. Pharaoh. Sort of like uh, tongue-in-cheek, disingenuous, uh, says to Moses, oh, I've sinned against God and against you. And so in the Jewish imagination, they hear this speech as sort of like uh, a son who knows he's a favorite son, who, if he just kind of gets his act together, can get back in the good graces of the father and won't be hungry anymore. And so they read the the younger son with a little bit of a suspicion here. And the narrative cues kind of teach us to read with a little bit of suspicion. Now, I want you to think, most of us, when we think of the lost son, who do we think of? The prodigal, right? The one who left. But let me just show you the difference in this from the previous two. No one goes searching for this guy. The father does not go searching after the son. The father famously stays put. Now, maybe uh, he's on the porch and he's leaning in and he's looking out because he loves this son. Uh, and, and every indication is when the son comes back, the father runs out to greet the son, right? And then immediately uh, gives him all the apparel that he's, you know, that, that's nice, uh, rings and a robe and welcomes him back in. It's a big sweeping gesture, right? Um, But at this point, uh, somebody's getting lost in the mix, and that is the older son. Where's the older son to be found? The father sees the the younger son on the horizon, doesn't even let him get through his speech, just immediately, you know, brings him into the house, says, kill the fatted calf, uh, the the grain-fed one, by the way. So sorry, all you grass-fed people. Um, 
but the grain-fed calf, let's kill that thing, let's have a huge feast. And then the, the story tells us that this feast has started. Like it's begun. The, the music's going, the wine is flowing, the food is on the table, you can smell the, the, the meat, the scent of meat in the air. And where's the older son? The older son is out at a field taking care of business. And the text tells us the older son all of a sudden is walking back to the home and he hears music and he smells the feast and he has a sense of like, what's going on here? Now this is where the story starts to bring us to focus. If we just focus on the younger son, we miss the point because although the beginning of the story is focused on the younger son, we kind of lose the younger son halfway through and then we, we don't even know anything about him after that. Now everything focuses on this older son because this older son is the one that was lost. The, the order previous to this was counting, searching, feast. That's the pattern. But here, it's feast. And then there's a counting. And then there's a search. The only search that happens in this parable of the, the two sons is when the father leaves the party to go find the older brother. And upon finding him, sees him dejected, disappointed, hurt. And now we got a real moment. You ever been in a family conversation where like things have been kept down a little bit, like repressed, like we haven't been saying what we really think or feel, and all of a sudden something happens and everyone explodes and the truth is just out there and it's like, we got to deal with this now. That's kind of the moment that happens with the oldest son and the father. And the son says, I'm angry. I I've done everything right. I, I didn't squander your inheritance. I do my duty faithfully. In fact, he says, I'm like a slave. I work like a slave to make our family work, to make you proud. And you couldn't even remember me at a party like this? In fact, you've never even thrown a party close to this for me. Now, Jewish sensibilities would have immediately been thinking with two sons, uh, we're going to favor the younger here, right? Cain and Abel, who does the murder? The older son. Um, Jacob and Esau, who's the buffoon? Esau. Um, who's the hero? Jacob. Um, I could go all the way down the line. You're always expecting that younger son to be sort of the darling, the star, the one who comes through in the end with, you know, glowing reviews. And the older son just always seems to have mud on his face. But here, the younger son is the buffoon. Comes back we're not even sure if he's really repentant. We don't see any signs of it other than that like rehearsed speech and he doesn't even really get it out of his mouth before his father sweeps him into the house. And it's the older son who's there, who's tender and vulnerable and the father sees this. The father didn't have to say anything to the younger son. He just gets gestures, puts the robe on him, puts the ring on him, throws the feast. But with the older son, he's calculating and he's careful and he uses his words. In fact, the word used here uh, by the narrator, is that he parakaleoed him, which is the same word we use for the Holy Spirit in the Bible, to comfort. The, Holy, the father is drawn to compassion and, and begins trying to woo the son back in. But what he finds is that bringing in a lost person, uh, accounting for a lost person in our life is much more difficult than accounting for and finding and bringing in lost things. Right? Shepherd, goes out, finds the sheep. I hear sheep don't like being put on the shoulder and that they might wiggle a little bit, but you can kind of manage it. No resistance from a coin. But a son, a child, a father, a mother, a cousin, a brother, a sister, a friend, 
with whom you are now estranged, and maybe the difficult hurt and pain that's been in the relationship that hasn't come to the surface is now there, and now we have to deal with it, that's difficult stuff. And I think the the point that this is posing, these stories are posing is, perhaps the sinner that is in need of repentance are those of us in our lives who lose track of the people of our lives without even realizing it. They're lost to us. And we don't know it. We don't feel it. We're not in touch with it. And we're certainly not searching for them and trying to bring them back and reconcile. But instead, we're kind of oblivious, going on about our business without taking an account. Interestingly enough, sinners in Luke's gospel are often tied to wealthy people who don't attend to the poor. That's kind of Luke's way of talking about sinners. And I think that's a, you know, in the words of uh, A.J. Levine, that's a dandy interpretation. Because here, each of the people who repent, the sinner who repents is the person who lost track and had to count and then had to go search and find. And so the force of these stories to us is to say, how will we repent? How will we take account of our social circles, take account of the, the relationships of our lives that matter and say, who's missing here? Who's unaccounted for? Who's gone from us? Who do we need to search for? Who do we need to throw the party for? These are the questions I think these stories prompt. And so like I said, listen, the cherished conclusions from the previous interpretation, I, I love them, I get them, we are sinners, we need God's grace, God does search for us and find us and rescue us. But in our lives right now, there are people who are unaccounted for. And part of what repentance means, the repentance that angels rejoice over, that God rejoices over, is when those of us who have social circles, who have just ignored or been lost or there's not been attention or energy going in those directions, when we start to engage, when we start to go out after There's no guarantee of reconciliation. There's no guarantee of forgiveness. There's no guarantee of repentance. There's no guarantee of peace. It's the the activity. It's the the engagement that makes it possible. You might be estranged with someone or have like a really weird relationship with someone in your life. And there's no promise that having a meal or forcing a conversation, you know, even with gentleness and wisdom, that that's going to pay off with fruit. But the father's out there and he's pleading with the son, he's engaging, and the story has no resolution. Doesn't tell us, and they all lived happily ever after. The son had a soft spot for the dad and finally realized what was going on and you know, came over to his side. So many open questions. Like what's the older brother gonna do when, he, when the older father dies and he gets the inheritance? How will he treat the brother? Will he continue in the spirit of the father or will he, you know, deject the son and put him out with the the workers once again? Let him know what it feels like to be a slave. We don't know. And it's kind of open-ended to the Pharisees and and the teachers of the law. What will you do with this? You see, Jesus took the lay of the land and said, I think people are falling through the cracks here. I'm counting and I'm seeing there are people who are despised or people who are rejected. There are people who are cast out or forgotten. And I'm on a search right now. That's what these meals are about. These meals that disgust you. That's what these meals are about. And I wonder what that would look like for you. New York is hard. New York is very hard to do this in because we have so little margin. And 
if, if there's ever a place where people can get squeezed out of our life just for sake of time, it's New York. We don't make time for our spouses. We don't make time for our good friends or even to, to cultivate friendships in a city where we might feel lonely. We don't make time for our children or our families. Reconciliation, taking account, searching, partying certainly requires time. And I find we work, 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 and then we party, 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 but there's not a lot of accounting and searching happening here in this city. What would it look like? And what would, how would that be good news in a city like ours? How would that be good news in all your social circles if you could take an account of where you are and the relationships of your life and go, who's missing? Who do we search for? Who do we throw the party for right now? Our family learned this from someone else, but we have this practice in our family where it's like the, the person who's struggling most in our family, they get this, they're the center of gravity of the family. The family rallies around them. Now, we don't always get this right. Like, we don't, we're not always dialed into who, who that person is at any given moment. But we are pretty good of, like, when that becomes clear, we, we rally around. And I wonder what it would look like to have that instinct. That's the Jesus instinct. Jesus looks around and says, I know the 99. You guys are, like, you're, you're thriving. You're doing fine. But, man, this one is hurting. Can we, can we, can we adjust around that? Can we wiggle, you know, toward them and create some space and, like, prioritize that for this season? What does that look like for you? How's the Spirit of God inspiring your imagination to take account of your relationships and go on the search and throw the party? It's risky. It's vulnerable. It's always harder. I was listening to someone who tell a love story, and they told the story this week of their, uh, how their spouse said, I love you first, and how that's always the hardest move, you know, like to say, I love you first. It's always easier to say, I love you too. It's so risky and vulnerable to just bring up a conversation in a relationship where you sense strain or you sense hurt. It's always so hard. And there's no promise that it's going to go great. But there's this hopeful sense that something's good is going to come out of this. Even the Jewish imagination. I told you the two sons, we expect the younger to be the darling and the older to be the buffoon. But even those stories come to interesting resolve and reconciliations. Like at, at Jacob's life, when he wrestles uh, with God and he comes on the aftermath of that, he comes across Esau and they make peace. Cain, who of all people, I mean, Cain is a murderer. Murdering still happens. It's bad. But Cain wiped out a quarter of the population of the planet. Pretty heinous. And yet, even the mark of Cain was a protective signal that God is protecting Cain. Don't mess with Cain. God's protecting him. And if God can protect an offender like Cain, who else might God be trying to protect right now? There are these interesting resolutions that invite us to have hope in our relationships, that though there's strain, though there's hurt, there may be resolution if we will just press in and keep taking that next step. That might look like searching for you. It might look like taking account for you. It might look like throwing a party for you. But I think the invitation is, do something. Do something. That's how the kingdom of God comes into our world. You just got to do something sometimes. Let's pray. God, we thank you for uh, these stories.
We pray for just fresh imagination and energy. And even if it means we have to just take account of how we spend our energy and what margin we create for the things that matter in the world, we pray you would enamor our, our, our vision, enamor our sense of what's possible. Draw us forward with something positive that makes whatever sacrifice we'd have to make to make that work feel like a light thing. Let it be said of us like Jesus, that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Would you set some great joy in front of us right now that would relativize all the sacrifices that we maybe feel are too much or too hard or impossible or impractical right now? Give us courage to move toward those whom we've lost touch with. just as you move toward humanity, just as you move toward us. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.